Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16 as we continue our series in the book of Luke, The Certainty of the Savior. Jesus has been addressing the Pharisees and now he turns his attention in chapter 16 back to his disciples with yet another parable. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the Word of God. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be the manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write out 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little will also be dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is of another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray together. Again, as we sang earlier, Holy Spirit, come. And fill our hearts anew and afresh that there might be an increased hunger for your word. Your word that does not simply inform but transforms our very hearts and lives. Work that grace in and among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In 2008, Bernie Madoff was caught in the midst of a massive financial fraud. His Wall Street investment firm had tricked thousands of investors out of $64.8 billion. His firm basically took the client's money and gave it back to them rather than money from the returns of the company's profits. And as a result, Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison and required to pay back $170 billion in restitution. But suppose for a moment that at his hearing, the judge instead said, Hey, Bernie, that was really a clever scheme. Would you continue, would you consider teaching long-term investments at the Harvard Business School? You would have thought not only uh, ill of Bernie Madoff's ethics, but of the judge's scruples. And yet at first reading, that's almost what this parable sounds like. There's a manager of money who's been involved in unrighteous schemes, and he's actually 
commended by the owner. This money manager is caught in the middle of a financial scheme and his master, the owner of the business, commends his shrewdness. And we think, what in the world is Jesus teaching here? Is he teaching it's okay to be unethical in business practices? And of course, the short answer is absolutely not. So what's going on here? Jesus is not commending the dishonesty of this manager or in the workplace, and neither is the owner. There's a difference in saying, I commend the clever steward for being dishonest, and I commend the dishonest steward for being clever. That's what the owner of the company, the owner of the farm, is doing here. In essence, he's saying, by turning your pink slip into a profit, you've really outfoxed me this time. I've got to hand it to you. It was brilliant. It's a brilliant scheme. Well, what was brilliant about it? What was the scheme? He was using his resources to gain friends to secure his future. And Jesus is saying in this parable, sometimes the people of the world actually are wiser with their money than the people of God. And so running through this parable and Jesus' comments afterwards, we see at least three principles of how we might gain a more wise use of our resources. One of the first things we see in this parable is that as good stewards, we're to use our temporal possessions to gain eternal friends. We see that basically in verses 1 through 9. One commentator put it this way, we're to use our worldly possessions in such a manner that there will be persons in eternity who will be glad to receive us. Let's see how Jesus brings us to that point. The, the owner hears of the mishandling of his funds. He calls in the money manager and basically says, clean out your desk, give me your keys, and turn over the books. Now he knows the books have been cooked, and so he in fear begins to come up with a scheme. He knows he's not strong enough for manual labor, he's too proud to beg, and so he begins to call in those who owe his boss money one at a time. The first he slashes by 50% of what he owes, the second by 20%. But notice what he does. He asks them what they owe. Now, he already knew this. So why does he ask them? By getting them involved, they are being implicated in the scheme. And so when it comes time for this man to lose his job, there's an affection towards him. And they're implicated in the schemes themselves. They will feel obligated. So when this unemployed manager sets up his GoFundMe page, all these people feel obligated. And the owner's saying, that's ingenious. To, to the shock of the listeners, the owner commends this steward for the brilliance of the scheme. He's turned his pink slip into a promotion. Now what's Jesus' point here? Look at verses 8 and 9 again. The master commended this honest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. So for us to understand and apply what Jesus is teaching, we need to ask a couple of questions. What in the world does he mean, make friends with unrighteous wealth? He uses that phrase in verse 9 and verse 11. 
Money in and of itself is not unrighteous, though sometimes we may gain it through unrighteous means, as in this parable. In fact, in verse 8, where it describes the steward, the money manager, as dishonest, it is the same word used in verse 9 and 11 for unrighteous wealth. He was unrighteous. But not all gains of money is by unrighteous means. So what does Jesus mean by, by use unrighteous wealth for eternal purposes? Well, in verse 11, if you'll notice, he compares unrighteous wealth with something. He compares it with true riches. You see, unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth can be used to provide needs and comforts of life, a lot of things that we enjoy, but that's about it. There are many things that our wealth, our money, our worldly wealth cannot provide. To quote the Beatles, can't buy me love. Money cannot buy you love. It cannot buy you health. It cannot buy you eternal security. It cannot buy you happiness or lasting joy in life. And one day, we're told in verse 9, it will fail. All your wealth will not only fail in the things it promises, happiness, joy, health, security, significance. It will not only fail in that way, but on the day you will die, it will utterly, completely fail in providing anything else. In fact, literally it says, when it fails, when you fail, when you expire, when you breathe your last. You see, this kind of wealth cannot purchase eternal life. It cannot purchase the righteousness that you and I need to enter into glory. But what are these true riches that Jesus compares our worldly wealth to, no matter how much you amass? What are the true riches? The true riches are the grace that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, true riches are not found in silver and gold that perish, but in the priceless, precious blood of Christ that redeems us. True riches are found in Christ's righteousness that, that covers us and clothes all of our guilt and all of our shame and presents us before the Father one day as holy and blameless in His sight, no matter where we've been or what we've done, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what true riches provide, and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. But ultimately, those true riches are not found and rooted in the promises of Christ, but in the person of Christ, in discovering Him as the source of all God's blessings, the pearl of great price, the treasure chest of God's grace, the fount of every blessing. And when we find our joy in Him, it surpasses all the riches of this world. All the wealth of this world pale in comparison with knowing Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons in 1653, Johann Frank penned these words, Jesus priceless treasure, source of purest pleasure, truest friend to me, long my heart is panted till it almost fainted, thirsting after thee. Thine I am, O spotless lamb, I will suffer not to hide thee, seek no joy beside thee. Why? He found the source of true and lasting joy in the person of Christ. Let me ask you this morning, can you and I say this? 
Can we sing this? That we found in Christ the riches of God's grace. One can have all the riches in this world and lack nothing in this world. Yet without Christ, they are nevertheless deeply impoverished of soul and will be throughout all eternity. However, knowing Christ, finding in Him the true and lasting treasures and deepest pleasures of one's heart for which we were created, there is no comparison between the worldly wealth and the true riches that are found in the person of Jesus. But there's something else we need to understand to to begin to unpack the application of Jesus' parable here. And it takes us all the way back to verse 1 and to see how this unjust steward was first described. In verse 1 we're told he was wasting his owner's possessions. It's the same Greek word wasting is the same word used for squandering that we saw in chapter 15 regarding the prodigal son. In other words, Jesus is saying it is possible to take all the resources that God has entrusted to us as his stewards and without ever running or rebelling, nevertheless, we can still waste what he's given us or squander what he has entrusted to us. How so? What does it look like? Will we squander or we waste the resources God's entrusted to us when we spend them primarily on ourselves, primarily in the here and the now. And my friends, that is the American dream. And Jesus, again, is calling us to rise up and say no to the American dream. We have a kingdom dream that far surpasses what the American dream could ever promise to deliver. And so rather than investing it in ourselves in the here and now without any concern for the gospel or for the future of others, the better use and the point of the parable is this. Here's the shrewd, wise use of your resources. Use your worldly possessions in such a manner that there will be people in eternity who will be there ready to greet you when you come. When your resources fail, and it will, verse 9, as you will expire one day, see to it that there will be people to welcome you in the eternal dwellings. You know, you've heard the phrase, you can't take it with you. No, you can't. But Jesus teaches you can send it on ahead. What do we mean by that? How do we do that? Here's how. We invest heavily in the lives of people. We invest our resources heavily in gospel ministries so that through those ministries and through others, they will come to know the Savior. And one day they will be in glory. And when you arrive, they will be there to greet you. That's what Jesus is teaching here. It reminds me, I may have shared with some of you before, there was a man in our church in Lexington and his mother lived to 103 And when she turned 100 at her birthday party, they were just sort of reminiscing about some of her friends who had gone on before her, who were were waiting for her arrival in glory, people who had died 20 and 25 and 30 years previously. They were talking about some of those people, and his mother looked at him and said, you know, I bet they think I didn't make it. (laughs) Well, one day, no matter what age it might be, when you finally make it, 
Jesus is encouraging us to use the resources that we have to invest in people, to invest in ministry, so that one day they will be there with open arms. This is what Jesus has in mind. Shrewd living and giving, which does not squander the master's resources entrusted to us, invests wisely in the lives of people and their eternal salvation. If you want to know an investment that has eternal dividends, there it is, right there. And so let me ask you again, do you and I use our worldly possessions in a manner such that there will be people in glory one day because of your heavy investment in gospel ministry? There will be people in glory one day there to warmly welcome you and to greet you. Let me ask it in another way. When we, like the steward one day, will be called to turn over the books and to give an account before our master, will we be found to be faithful stewards of the resources which he's entrusted to us? Or do we use the large mass majority of it simply for ourselves and for the here and now? You know, there are many in our congregation who are wonderful, wonderful examples of heavily invested in the kingdom of God. And you're an encouragement to me, you're an encouragement to us as a body, and Jesus wants you to know that, that such encouragement is well worth it. Such investments are well worth it. He wants us to have that eternal perspective on it. And yet when we begin to think about investing our worldly wealth heavily in the kingdom, in the lives of the poor, in the gospel ministry, oftentimes we begin to wonder and be tempted to think, you know, if I had more, then I would give more. Jesus deals with that as well. Did you notice after telling the parable, he enters in in verses 10 through 12 and reminds us that as good stewards, we are to be faithful with the little things today in order to be entrusted with better things tomorrow. Did you notice he talks about you, you invest your worldly wealth in order to gain true riches? You know, sometimes we're tempted. Well, if I just had more money, if things weren't so tight then I would give more. And Jesus says, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Why? Notice what he, he's saying here. When, when we think I'll be more generous when I have more, Jesus, no, if, if you and I are not faithful with a little today, then in all likelihood we won't be faithful with a lot tomorrow. Why? Because it's not a matter of the dollars in our bank account. It's a matter of the demeanor of our hearts. Where my treasure is, Jesus said, there will my heart be also. And so it's not a matter of how much, it's a matter of where. Where is my heart invested? Unless my heart is changed by the gospel today, I will not be more generous tomorrow, I promise you. If my heart is gripped by the earthly pleasures, then I'm going to struggle with investing them in heavenly treasures. The, the earthbound heart thinks this way. You know, think of the trips taken, the cars driven, the clothes worn, and the houses owned if I had not tithed and given above and beyond the tithe. And we feel cheated 
We feel like we will not have all that life has to offer us if we do this. But notice how Jesus answers our concern. Look again at verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the righteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Jesus wants us to understand that it's not loss when we expend our lives, when we expend our resources. It is not loss for the believer in Christ. It is a gain that we can hardly begin to imagine. It is an investment that if we could connect the dots and really see it, we would invest even more into the kingdom of God. Jesus says, you're not going to miss a thing. Why? Because I am promising you, and I'm sealing that promise in my blood, that I have for you better things, true riches in glory. The apostle Paul wrote, no eye has seen, no ear heard, no heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. J.C. Ryle put it this way, a right use of our money in this world from right motives will be for our benefit in the world to come. It will not justify us, but it shall be evidence of grace. How we use our resources in gospel ministry is an evidence of grace which befriends our souls. And so good stewards must seek to be faithful in the little things today in order to be trusted and trusted with the better things for tomorrow. And finally, Jesus reminds us, as good stewards, we will never master our money until we love our master more than our money. He says you cannot, there's no in-between, you cannot love Money, literally the word here is mammon. All the things that money can buy, money and all the things, your, your possessions, everything that you have, everything that you own, you, you cannot love this and Jesus. There's a clear delineation. Where does my heart lie? In which kingdom does it lie? You see, money has a way of mastering us. Our possessions have a way of possessing us. And the love of money has a way of owning us. Paul, writing younger Timothy, said this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, with many heartaches. Notice it's not money, but it's the what? It's the love of money. It's the craving of the things that we think it will provide, the comforts in life, the next new gadget, a sense of significance, a sense of success, a sense of security. It's all these things and money cannot provide. So the question is, what can free me from being mastered by all this stuff that the world wants to sell? What can free us from the American dream? of selling our souls to something that will not last. What's the hope for someone like me whose heart is often tethered to the stuff of this world? What's Jesus' answer? What's he leading us to? The, the answer is that we will never master our money until we love our master more than our money. We cannot serve both. We cannot be devoted to both. Only when my heart is transformed by the grace of the gospel in Christ. Only when my love for the Savior exceeds my love for self. 
Only when he becomes the treasure of my heart, only then will I be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, Whom have I have in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Only then will I be able to say with the psalmist these words. Only then will I be able to sing, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, now and always, thou and thou only first in my Heart, thou King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. That's the gospel transformation that I need. And this is what frees us towards a gospel-rich living and giving lifestyle. It's the impetus of what Paul wrote again to Timothy. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in this proverb, in this parable. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life and so when you and I receive the pay raise or the bonus one of our first thoughts ought to be not how can I raise my standard of living but how can I raise my standard of of giving why because the gospel compels me in that direction Christ himself and the love of Christ compels us to love the lost and to invest heavily in gospel ministry. It's this expulsive power of a new affection for Christ that changes our hearts and and our lives to be marked by this kind of generous living and giving. A few years ago, John Piper wrote an article on commemorating the birthday of John Wesley. Wesley was born in 1703. The article was entitled, Happy Birthday, John Wesley, Two Silver Spoons and a Thousand Souls. The title came from uh, one of Wesley's famous statements about finances. He, he had several. He had a very simple formula that he encouraged his people in terms of investing in the kingdom. He said it this way, Having first gained all you can... And secondly, saved all you can. So through gainful employment, gain all you can. Save all you can so that you can give all you can. And here's how John Wesley lived that out in his life. In 1731, his income that year was 30 pounds. That was a a good annual living. But he realized he could live off of 28 pounds, so he gave two pounds to the poor in addition, I think, to his tithe. And then the next year, his expenses, his income doubled, but his expenses remained the same, and so he gave away 32 pounds. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, maintaining the same standard of living, he gave away 62 pounds. 
And in his long life, Wesley's income advanced to as high as 1,400 pounds. He was an extremely wealthy man, books written, sermons preached, being sold. And yet that 1,400 pounds, he remained living on 28 to 30 pounds a year. He said that he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his possession at a time. This so baffled the English tax commission that they investigated him in 1776 and said, surely this man's got more money and more silver somewhere else. And this is what Wesley wrote them, hence the title of John Piper's article. I have two silver spoons in London and two in Bristol, and that is all the plate I have at present. And I shall buy no more as long as I am surrounded by those who are wont in, of bread. Wesley died in 1791 at the age of 87. He was an incredibly wealthy man. He had secured over the years 30,000 pounds of earned income. That's a thousand years of comfortable income in England at that time. And yet, when he passed away, all that was mentioned in his will was the coins in his pockets and in his dresser. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. This money, wealth, was given away to people, to the poor, and to gospel ministry leading many to faith in Christ, leading thousands to faith in Christ. Not a bad title. Two silver spoons and a thousand souls. Not a bad life. Heavily invested in the kingdom of God. You know, your portfolio and my portfolio may look a lot different and how we use our resources may be quite different than that of John Wesley. But make no mistake, Jesus says you cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus is reminding us that the gospel of grace calls us to live such gospel-rich, generous, giving, and living lives such that there will be people in glory one day because of your investment in them, your investment in gospel ministry, your investment in the kingdom of God, that they will be there ready to receive you when you arrive. Interesting, confusing parable at first read, but profound and simple when we come and cut to the chase of what Jesus is teaching. Jesus, would you become increasingly the true treasures of our hearts? Let's pray together. Father, we ask this day that you would so reveal to us again the beauty and the glory of Jesus and the richness of his grace, that all other wealth accumulated would pale in comparison and that you would enthrall us by that beauty and grace, capture our hearts and our lives and the resources entrusted to us that we might increase in our benevolence towards the poor our investments in the gospel ministry, that you would encourage us as we give to those who've gone abroad to share the gospel of grace. And Lord, we confess this can only take place as you, Jesus, 
increasingly become the true treasures of our hearts. Please captivate us by your grace and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.